coming up on this week's podcast. Gideon was continually looking for reassurance that God was with him. He didn't want to do this if God wasn't with him. He was really very nervous about the whole idea of going forward on this call. Before he even really knew what it was, he needed to have these kinds of signs because without God, the one thing he did know is without God, there was not a chance in the world he was going to be able to get this done. Stay tuned for more. Welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's a guest speaker with today's message. Thank you for letting the children dance. Um, <laughs> you know, um, the church that I was raised in, we used to sing a song before Sunday school saying, um, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Uh, we sang it, but we weren't glad. I was, <laughs> I was missing my cartoons. Winky Dink was on, and... Uh, it was vegan church was a chore. And I can tell you that in our church, that dancing would have lasted exactly 10 seconds. And the kids would have been ushered out and the parents would have gone behind them and they would have been covering their head. They would have been so ashamed. This is the place to be. This is a place of joy. This is a place where we are supposed to celebrate. We are supposed to hardly wait to be able to get here on a Sunday morning to be in the presence of God. You know that Jesus is here among us, do you not? Jesus is here among us. I have been in churches. I've talked to people where they say, well, that is awfully presumptuous of you that he should choose to be on your church in any particular Sunday as like he's the great pumpkin and he only shows up at one church a Sunday. <laughs> only shows up once in a while. No, it is not presumptuous. It is relying upon the promise of Jesus Christ where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among you. Jesus is here. We celebrate his being here, and he is glad to be here. He, is, he loves to be among his people. Okay, now we're going to be dealing with a history book. Did I warm you up enough? History. This history, I, I, I know the history gets everybody all torqued. I can hardly wait. I'm going down to Barnes & Noble. I'm going to buy a history book. I can read history all day long. I like dates. I like all these other things that we have to memorize. I like the sequence of things. I like to name people. I like to know what happened in 1776, what happened in 1783. I love it. I don't hear much enthusiasm. <laughs> Maybe it's me. My, I'm getting old and my hearing's not what it was. The, um, the history can be tough. And the idea of it being history begins to cloud our ability to see what the book truly is, which is the history of God. The history of God working with people, we're people. It's, there are different names, different, a different time of the people who were in the book of, uh, of Judges, but we're people. It's God's story working in and through people 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago? I mean, we, we think ancient history now is the 80s. Um, <laughs> 3,000 years ago. But there's a couple things that tell us why it's still, it's still valuable to read. One of them is 
God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and there is nothing new under the sun. Yes, it happened to a bunch of people, and some names have changed, but the things that go on in the story of Gideon in the book of uh, Judges is still going on now. We can see it now. In fact, not only is it going on now in the world, it's going on in each one of us. Everything that's going on here, we're dealing with this personally in our own walk with God. Everything that's going on here, we're grappling with. Now, the book of Judges fits in a time in Israelite history between Joshua and the time of the kings, when the kings came along, starting with 1 Samuel. Um, If Joshua was the golden age, Judges is the dark ages. In the time of Joshua, they followed Joshua. Everybody loved the Lord. The Lord was in charge. The land was parceled out, delivered. Just like they said, they come into the land of milk and honey. They come into the promised land. They now all are assigned their land. They all worship. They put up their altars. They're worshiping God. God is the king. God is Lord. He is Lord over everybody. He is our king. And we worship him and honor him and hold him first. But the seeds were sown for the dark ages. And the seeds were sown for the dark ages by the fact that there was one thing God told them to do, one very important thing God told them to do that they did not do. They didn't drive out the people who were living there. Why might they not have done that, I wonder? We look back and try to read the story. Why would they not have done that? God was very clear, but they didn't do it. Thinking about our own selves there, maybe we would have said, you know, well, that seems so harsh. It seems so mean. They were here first. Why shouldn't they stay here? We're people of God. We can get along with people. Maybe we can get along with them. Maybe we just need to try harder. Maybe we just need to be more loving. Surprise, surprise, God knows what he's doing. He wanted the people of Israel to remove the people who were there so that they would not intermarry with them, they would not intermingle with them, and and, uh, most importantly, so that they would not begin to worship their gods. The people stayed, and God told them, this is going to be a snare to you. And they ended up worshiping the other gods. Now, in in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there is a line which we see over and over and over again. And it is this. The people did evil in the eyes of the Lord, in the sight of God. Or a particular king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And when this reference to evil is spoken of in the Bible, when this reference to evil, it's not about just being mean to your kids. It's not about beating your dog. It's about that you did not put God first. You did not worship God first. You worshiped other gods. In fact, a lot of times they chased after other gods. They exhausted themselves running after other gods. At the very least, the worship of God was mixed in with the worship of all these other gods. The very first commandment says, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And this is what happens. They made peace with the people around them, and they began to worship other gods. They did evil. As soon as Joshua died, this started to happen. 
everybody loved Joshua. Remember, Joshua said, um, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The whole nation agreed with that. They're all on board. We're going to worship God, this, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is our God, and we're going to worship him. He gave us this land. He kept his promise. He's been a, a part of us forever. And as he said, I, they will be my people, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And as soon as Joshua died, it began to unravel. And by the time of Judges, the rot had set in. Doesn't take long. Some of us can remember praying in schools. I remember it. I remember when they told us to knock it off. I remember Miss Hutchins saying, as long as I'm here, we're going to pray. But as we know, Miss Hutchins, being flesh and blood, was not there forever, and uh, the next person who came in said, we're not going to pray. That was not long ago. When we make changes of this, of this sort, we make changes in the way we view God, it makes a difference in the kind of life we live, and it makes a difference also in the way that the, our relationship with God, how God actually holds us. It doesn't matter. We see in the book of Judges that the Lord, uh, in dealing with the people who disobeyed him, in dealing with the people who betrayed him and turned their backs on him, that he deals with them. He disciplines them. Sometimes he punishes them. Sometimes he gives them over into the hands of their enemy, and the enemy is just allowed to come in and run roughshod over them. And actually, that's what's going on here in the book of Gideon, in the story of Gideon. There are some judges that come before this where we go through one after the other. We heard about Ehud. We heard about Deborah. We heard about Shamgar. Now it's Gideon's turn. And when Gideon comes into the story, the Midianites had so terrorized the people of Israel that they had actually given up their land, fled into the hills. They were living in caves. They were hiding. They were afraid of actually showing their faces. A Midianite might see us, and if they saw us, we were in real trouble. We could not defend ourselves. The Midianites were tough, and they came in and really dealt with these people, and they're hiding all day long. They literally were driven underground. I mean underground, into caves, hiding from, all these, uh, from this enemy. And this is where we see Gideon when he first starts. He is threshing wheat, separating the wheat from the chaff. Now, we're all farmers, right? All of us farmers have gathered here on a typical Sunday. We've left our chores for the day. When we go home, we're going to go and thresh the wheat. Anybody know how that's done? I, being the farmer myself, you know how it's done? You throw the stuff up in the air and you let the the, uh, wind blow it away. You separate the wheat from the chaff. Gideon is doing this in a hole in the ground. He is so afraid of the Midianites that he is in a wine press, which is a hole in the ground. He's literally down there like, you know, and hoping that the Midianites out there scooping out the land don't notice this little puff of dust and chaff coming up every once in a while. He is hiding. He is scared. He is timid. He is worried and fearful. The Midianites have really scared him half to death, and he does not want to be caught by them, as did apparently no no one else. He was the only one doing the separating the wheat from the chaff. Here comes the angel of God. The angel of God says... Greetings, mighty man of battle. <laughs> mighty man of battle. He's afraid to, he's afraid to separate wheat from the chaff. He's, he can't even thresh wheat. He's going to go into battle. And um, mighty man. And the angel basically is extending the call of God 
as we all receive a call, we talked about that this morning earlier in the time when uh, we were talking with, with Justin. We are called to something. Gideon was called to something very important. Gideon had his response, and his response is something that we see in the Bible over and over and over again. Basically is, you've got the wrong guy. There's a famous guy. There's a, there's a, there's a, a strong guy. There's a handsome guy. There is a popular guy. There is a powerful guy. There's somebody out there better equipped to do the work of God than me. But, you know, have we ever seen a place where God says, you know, you're right. I, I, I got the wrong guy. Just go, no. God, knew, God knows what he's doing. He came to the guy. He knew who he was talking to. He knew what was possible in the hands of God, under his authority, to get the job done that he wants done. One of the things that he had to do, this mighty man of valor, was to tear down his father's altar to Baal and to tear down the Asherah pole. These were the places where they were worshiping Baal and Asherah. These were the main uh, pagan gods that these people here uh, worshipped. And Gideon agreed to do it, but does anybody remember how he went about it? He went out at night. He, he didn't even want to be seen. Not only didn't he want to be seen by the Midian, he didn't want to be seen by his own people. He, they, they would wake up in the morning and, and like they wouldn't notice that their altars were gone. Like, what happened? Well, the word got out, of course, that Gideon did it, but he was still timid. He was still afraid. He went through also the process of asking for these various signs. We know the stories of the various signs that are there. The one with the, the, the uh, fleece, where one day it would be wet and the next day it would be dry, and, and we do all these other things. Gideon, um, Gideon was continually looking for reassurance that God was with him. He didn't want to do this if God wasn't with him. He was really very nervous about the whole idea of going forward on this call. Before he even really knew what it was, he needed to have these kinds of signs because without God, the one thing he did know is without God, there was not a chance in the world he was going to be able to get this done. Terry prayed this morning, um, uh, apart from God, we can do nothing. Gideon do that. But Gideon is continually growing fearful. He's continually needing more evidence, more signs. Especially when we finally get to the place where the Lord winnows down the number of people who are going to fight in his army down to what, like 300? Some tiny little number. I mean, like, you know, five times the number of the people in this room going up against an army. Imagine that. And some without swords. All right. There are five major themes. Five major themes in the book of Judges in the story about Gideon that relate to us. Yes, that's fine. That was two, that was three thousand years ago. What do we? What do we? Uh, how does it relate to us now? How does it relate to me in my daily life? How does this ancient history touch my life right now? Well, we already touched on one: uh, the people of God did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Remember. So we're dealing with the people of God. If my people who are called by my name, we're dealing with the people of God. At that time, the people of God was the nation of Israel. Today, the people of God is the church, us. We're the people of God. We're the ones who thirst for him. We're the ones who follow him. We're the ones who take up our cross daily and follow him. We're the people who put him first who are for him and not against him, doing what he says, going into the world, standing up for him, taking the slings and arrows, making ourselves targets 
of scorn and derision and laughter and whatever else we're, we're accused of. Stupidity, which is the one that almost seems, seems to get me most of all. Being accused of stupidity is something that I, that's an idol of mine. I can't bear it. I can't bear being told that I'm stupid for following Jesus. So I have to deal with that. But we are called, and we are the people of God, to whom these words are addressed and who are held to this particular expectation that we will not do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. We will do what is right in the eyes of the Lord in the sight of God, doing the things that he wants. So there is that idea of the people of God. That's us. So when we read the scriptures, he is talking to us. Yes, it was addressed to Gideon, but it's still dealing with us. What are the people of God expected to do? We are expected to yield. We are expected to surrender. We are expected to obey. We are expected to worship, and we are expected to worship him and worship him only. All of these things are still valid. All of these things deal with who we are right now and how it is we are supposed to be living as people of God. The second thing that we've already covered as the theme is the call. Gideon was called. He got a really nice obvious call. He had an angel actually standing next to him telling him that he was supposed to do these various things. My call didn't, at least if there was an angel who called me, I didn't recognize him. I didn't see him. I didn't recognize him. I didn't hear his voice. But I have a call nonetheless, as do, as do every one of us. We are called here. We are called to follow the Lord. We are given the call to obey and to worship. We have heeded that call, which is why we're here. We have heeded that call, which is why we say what, the, what um, Isaiah said, send me. Here am I, send me. That is the proper response to the call. It's not always our response to the call. Um, I can remember talking to somebody, uh, a friend of mine uh, from years ago, who was really eager to become a Christian, didn't really know about following Jesus, she was just interested in becoming a Christian. That's all the farther she was. That's, all the, that's the way she understood it. But she kept saying the same thing over and over again. What do I have to give up? My answer to her was that. You have to give up that idea of what do I have to give up. The whole idea of what do I negotiate? What will the Lord let me keep? What is it that I don't have to get? You know, what, what belongs to me so I can hold on to it? Um, it just seems to me that you have to give up too many things. And as C.S. Lewis said, you have to give up everything. You have to your whole self, everything. You can hold nothing back. That's what surrender is. It's unconditional surrender, everything. We receive the call. This is the right response. But in general, we as human beings, especially in a culture like ours, can I keep my house? Can I stay here? Um, do I have to take my kids out of, out of private school? Uh, all the other things that we say, I, what do I have to give up? We give up ourselves, the Lord will tell us, he'll make it known to us what it is that he wants us to do. Call and response. Gideon's response was, um, not haphazard, that's not the word I was looking for, stop and go. It's, um, it, it reminds me, a lot of people who were younger than 50, might not remember this. Bear with me, please. It's <laughs> Anybody remember the Ed Sullivan show? A couple people remember the Ed Sullivan. You know, there was a time when a lot of hands went up. Ed Sullivan. <laughs> grandfather used to watch it a lot. <laughs> right. My grandparents told me all about Ed Sullivan. <laughs> um, 
Ed Sullivan had this. I don't know what it made of what it was about Ed Sullivan that made him decide that he had to show this act every couple of months. It was a guy who would spin plates on a stick. You remember this? They play the music, saber dance, uh, and the guy would you know get the thing up and he'd go over here and get another one going. He'd go back and this one start to wobble and he'd go back and get it. That's what Gideon's response to the call was like. Every he would get a little bit farther on and he would weaken at some point and he'd say, "Take me back." Get me going here. Get me going here. Reassure me of this. Reassure me of that. Strengthen me. Um, get me to the point where I don't worry anymore. I don't want to fear what I'm doing. He's dealing with fear all the time. It was just like that. He was, he was continually going back, reassure me, comfort me. And God did, which he'll do with us. We're not on our own. The Lord doesn't call us and then send us out and say, uh, you know, come back to me in a couple of years and tell me how it went. Um, he's with us all the time. The whole idea of the call is that I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. That call and response. Next. We've read the details of the battle. He goes and he wins the battle. He's, uh, uh, the judges in particular were raised up primarily to defend Israel against various enemies. When the people of God cried out to God for help, it was always after something. When, when this happened and that happened, this something else happened, it kept on going. At last, the people said, they cried out to God for help. Help us, get us out of this. They didn't cry out for mercy. They didn't cry out in repentance. In the book of Judges, you don't see that. They didn't come because they were sorry. They came because they exhausted every recourse that they had, and now's the time to call upon this, this other God that people keep talking about that brought us up out of Egypt some however many years ago. And so we might as well give God a try. We've tried everything else. God was plan B, and they weren't interested in repentance. They weren't interested in worship. They were just interested in getting rid of the Midianites and all the other people who were hurting them. That matters. But in any case, Gideon agreed to go and do what God was calling him to. And it was tough to go into battle with so few people. What does this have to do with us? What we see in Gideon is a progression that led to his acting for God in the way God asked him to. Start with belief. It grows into faith, into trust, into obedience, and into reliance. And what we're getting at here with this combination of actions and responses on our part, is we're getting into the realm of supernatural living. Gideon was called to go and do something which a human being would never be ordinarily expected to do. Gideon would never have stood up, nor would any one of us, saying, I can go and beat this enemy with 300 people. Never. I don't care which 300 people it is. But he trusted and he relied upon God to do things which human beings could not do, and we are called to do this. This is not easy. The whole idea of supernatural living is not easy, and it ties in to the next part. We follow the story of Gideon, and at one point after the war is over, he says... 
He says to the people, you know, the war is over. They said, you know, you should be our king. He says, we don't need a king. We're not going to have a king. God is our king. And right after he says that, I mean, literally the moment after he says that, here's what he says. Well, I'll start, I'll start at the beginning. This is... Um, 822, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the land of Midian. Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. It's interesting because he named his son Abimelech, which means my father is the king. Anyway, so (laughs) actions speak louder than words. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, but I do have one request. There's always one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment. Each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. Um, I don't know exactly how how heavy that is, but 1,700, anything must be pretty heavy. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made made the gold into an ephod a garment, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves for it by worshiping it there. It became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. He says he's not going to be the king, but he's perfectly willing to have the people go back to idol worship. They had peace because they defeated the enemy, but they were back to idol worship. Clearly, this is an indication that more trouble is coming. One of the interesting things about the book of Judges is when it ends, they're in the same condition they are when it starts. When it starts, they're fractured, they're fragmented, they're worshiping the wrong gods, um, they're, they're scared, they're afraid, they're vanquished, they're defeated, Clearly not the, not the lives of the victorious people. At the end of Judges, it's exactly the same thing. They've made literally no progress in all of that time. By virtue of the fact of turning their backs on the Lord and trying to do things their own way, this is what they have brought upon themselves, and that brings, in addition to supernatural living, it brings up something about Gideon that replies very, very much to us, and that is the fact that we, are con- we continue to be influenced by worldly and human thinking. What's wrong with that? We live in the world, and we're humans. We are called not to be of the world. In fact, we're not even called to be friends of the world. Here's there's one that uh, gets me. Friendship of the is of the to, friendship with the world is blank with God. Anybody remember that word? Enmity. But Lord, we're here to serve the world. We're here to love it. Yes, you are here to love the world. You're not here to copy the world. You're not here to adopt its ways. You're not here to do things your way. You are here, called by God, to surrender and walk in faith and confidence, relying upon the Lord to do mighty and wonderful things in the course of the kingdom work that he's doing. And we stop ourselves because it's either too big or it's too hard or it's, it's, uh, it puts us, uh, asks too much sacrifice or it just doesn't seem possible. We live in a very rational world. Um, it's interesting to me that 
uh, at the time of the Renaissance, they had another word for it. It starts with an E. Anybody know what that word is? Enlightenment. That really interests me. When we started to turn our back on God, the world calls it enlightenment. They think they have seen the light because they are abandoning and turning their back on what they see as irrational, unscientific superstition. And we are, and here's the, the, the last point, at war. Um, but wait a minute, this is the Prince of Peace. We can't, what kind of Prince of Peace comes, with, comes at war? Um, the kind of peace, the, the peace that uh, Jesus is talking about here um, when he comes back in the, in, in the incarnation doesn't mean that there's no conflict anywhere on earth because the conflict against Satan is very much alive and it's going to go on right through to the end, which we read in the book of Revelation and which uh, they hint at in books like Thessalonians and others. This is coming our way. In the meantime, Jesus says some things which the... It's, it's funny. Have, has any of you ever noticed how much non-Christians know about what Christians should believe? Have you noticed this? Christians don't behave this way. Christians don't believe these things. This is how a Christian should be. When I was not a Christian, and believe me, I was an, I was, I was an adamant, rabid non-Christian back at that time, breathing fire against Christians. Um, but I knew how Christians should act. I knew how Christians should talk. I knew what Christians should want. And when Christians talked the way the Lord told them to, I didn't get it. For the very same reason that, the, that uh, Jesus tell, you know, that we're told, Paul tells us, these things are spiritually discerned, and I didn't believe in a spirit. I, didn't, I wasn't even relying upon the part of me that would have allowed me to understand what this is. These things are spiritually discerned, just as he says in the Bible, that was foolishness to me. We are confronting a world which has its tentacles in our hearts because we don't want to be called irrational. Being irrational in and of itself is not a good thing. Um, you tell a person who's not a Christian that you're a fool for Christ, how do they hear that? This doesn't turn them off. Say, oh, me too. Let me out. I can hardly wait to be a fool. <laughs> no. The whole idea of supernatural living tied up with what we're grappling with the things that are holding us back. As, uh, as Jesus has told us, one of the things that the non-Christians will, do not know is Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. To set brother against brother and husband against wife. There's, you know, we, uh, we war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. One of the other ones is the, the, uh, from Second uh, Corinthians. The weapons with which we do battle are not carnal. There's a lot of reference to war. There's a lot of reference to battle. We are called, um, believe me, I'm the last person who's going to want to turn down a spaghetti supper. The very last person. <laughs> um, 
Churches have spaghetti suppers. Churches have bazaars. Churches do various other kinds of things. But we are not a social club. I had a guy that when I was a pastor in northern Baltimore County, he said, well, I would come to church, but I do all of my charity work through the Lions Club. And he was perfectly convinced that the Lions Club and the church were completely equivalent because they both are based on the same thing, doing good stuff. Um, I don't see why I have to go through church. Besides, the Lions Club only meets once a month. You guys meet once a week. The Lions Club works a lot better for me. I write my check. They take clothes down to the needy. They do all these other various things. The whole idea of surrender to Jesus Christ, supernatural living, it just never occurred to him. Um, And it wasn't a teachable moment, as it turns out. Um, The world has its grips on us. Um, That's where our battle lies. We battle not just in, in the world, not just overall, but in our own hearts. We're battling with powers and principalities. In our own heart, Satan is very eager to keep you from knowing how much power you have. He is very eager to keep you from seeing what it is that you can be doing and should be doing for the Lord. And he puts within us, this builds up within us, this thing, sense of what we cannot do. A lot of churches have fallen for this. Don't believe in miracles anymore. I've, I've I know I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again. There was a bishop of the Episcopal Church in northern New Jersey who did not believe in the resurrection. Um, It's not rational. makes no sense. I haven't seen any more resurrection since then. It makes no sense. It's not scientifically demonstrable. It doesn't fit with the world that we live in. But it's true. If we don't rely upon God to be within us, doing what he wants us to do, we're going to miss this, and we're going to be um, in a position where we are excluded from our call. It's basically a denial of our call, not to understand what the Lord calls us to, that we are called to supernatural living, complete and utter reliance upon God, complete surrender, submission, subjection, all these other things, those terms don't appeal to the world today. Power, authority, Um, getting our own way. When we as Christians, I'll close up with this, when we as Christians, in the course of our walk, in the course of responding to God, in the course of obeying and relying upon him, doing the things we want to do, be aware and alert of how often we use the word I. I want. I would like. I prefer. I won't. I can't. Doesn't mean it's not right all the time. Doesn't mean that it's not appropriate all the time. But be aware of it because I find that a lot of us, including me at various times, I have my vision. We were talking about this with with Justin. I have my vision of what the church should be like. I've only been here five months. What kind of vision am I supposed to come in and impose upon people? I would rather they do this than that. I would rather the church go this way and put these other things aside. I like churches that do this and not that. Whether either one of them could be both godly, well, both of them could be uh, in the will of God. Put that aside. There used to be the uh, old uh, hymn, Have Thine Own Way. Remember? While I am yielded and still. While I am quiet, yielded and still. We go to the Lord with everything. Everything. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we go to the Lord with everything. Give ourselves over to him. Lord, you show me. There are some things I believe that I am convinced of, 
but you show me. No matter how much I believe them, no matter how convinced I am of them, you show me. If I don't hear it from you, I don't know. I'm left to make up my own mind. I don't want to rely on my own self. Leads to the scripture, and then we'll go to prayer. In 1 John 4, 1, test every spirit to see if it is of God. Every spirit. God expects us to test him. Do you understand what that's? Every spirit. Test every spirit to see if it is of God. Yield to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Empty yourself to the Lord. Call to the Lord. Cry to the Lord. Lord, show me what is right. Show me what is true. Uh, correct me where I'm wrong. Don't let me persist in error. Don't let me take something that, is, that I came up with out of my own mind and make it into Christian doctrine. You show me what you want, and I will go. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. Yeah.